Zobal the archer and Kushara the pike bearer had poured many a libation to their friendship in the sanguine liquors of Yoros and the blood of the kingdom's enemies. In that long and lusty amity, broken only by such passing quarrels as concerned the division of a wineskin or the apportioning of a wench, they had served amid the soldiery of King Horaf for a strenuous decade. Savage warfare and wild fantastic hazard had been their lot. The renown of their valor had drawn upon them, ultimately, the honor of Horaf's attention, and he had assigned them for duty among the picked warriors that guarded his palace in Tharad. And sometimes the twain were sent together on such missions as required no common hardihood and no disputable fealty to the king. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. We're back! In the land of Zothique, with Clark Ashton Smith's The Black Abbot of Puthum. Puthum, like vacuum. That's just the kind of nonsense talk we like here at Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and this is our free show for March. Please consider subscribing on our Patreon to get more great content all month, every month. But right now, we're doing something we've never done before. This is an event, a crossover not seen since Batman met the Green Hornet or the Full House met the Family Matters. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to discuss the story with the hosts of the podcast, Voluminous. I think you might mean uh, not since Abbott and Costello met Frankenstein. <laughs> Perhaps that is the best the best characterization, yes. Now that's a mashup. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we are joined by Andros Lee-Man and Sean Branny. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I assume you're saying their names that way to mimic Lovecraft's letters, which he used like old mummy spellings of his and Clark Ashton Smith's names. I don't know what you're talking about. It's Andrew Lehman and Sean Branny. Welcome to the show, guys. <laughs> if that's Thank why you. you're doing it, then I guess it's a high honor. Thank you so much for having us. Woo, happy to be here. Well, this story we've chosen today, we've chosen for two reasons. The first of which is that it's mentioned in a letter between Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. We're going to discuss that letter in more detail when we guest on your show, Voluminous. Whoa! Uh, when can we expect that episode? That will be the episode for March. It'll come out on uh, March 5th. And after you're done with this, wait for the weekend and you can listen to that. Woo! Good times. <laughs> It's as if we planned it. <laughs> Geniuses. Geniuses, I tell you. This thrilling crossover has been quite some time in the works. We've been wanting to do a crossover episode with you guys for a long time, and we've finally figured out a way to schedule it. Not to confuse people, but we've got Andrew reading and being on the show. Mm -hmm. Only Andrew and Chad have had that distinction, I think. No, you've done it as well. We what? made you read for The Night Ocean by oh. Barlow the last episode of Lovecraft stuff that we covered. Yeah, and uh. we can talk about it on Voluminous, but I, there was an R.H. Bay in, <laughs> in the letter. I assume that was R.H. Barlow. Yeah, R, I think we, we yes. would pronounce that R.H.B. So okay. that's just... It's just his initials turned into ridiculous syllables. Yeah. It's not easy to make B difficult, so yeah. <laughs> B-E-I is his best stab at it. Somehow Lovecraft managed to do it. You know, Sean actually has read for us as well, way back on the statement of Randolph Carter, as well as Robert E. Howard's The Thing on the Roof. Mm -hmm. So we are very glad to have you both on as guests to help us sort out this story. Well, thanks for having us. Do you guys know when the story was first published? It was first published in the March issue of Weird Tales for 1936. The second reason we're covering this story is because it was listed in the Dark World's quarterly article, The Fantasy Vampires of Clark Ashton Smith. It sounded interesting. We were looking for a vampire story because, of course, this is Marches for Draculas. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm already horrified. Well, why don't we just go through a synopsis of the story and anything you all feel like volunteering or talking about, you offer it right up. Will do. Now at the beginning, we're back in Zothique in the land of Yoros. We've got an archer named Zobal and a pikeman called Kershara. They serve under King Horaf, and they like to party and celebrate their victories together. The only fights they have are when they're figuring out how to share wine or a woman. So it's very much like Lovecraft and Smith and their relationship. <laughs> Indeed, colleagues to the end. They're traveling along with a fat eunuch, Simbin, who's got the duty of retrieving a reputedly beautiful young woman from Israel for King Horaf's harem. That's Simban's job in general, I believe, procuring women for the boss, and he's carrying lots of gold because this woman's pulchritude is renowned throughout the land. Her name is Rubalsa. You can never have too much pulchritude. <laughs> That's what they say. There aren't supposed to be any robbers in Isdrel, but there might be some giant goblins, which... I thought in, you know, D&D parlance, that's a bugbear. These goblins are tall as giants and humped like camels. Is that a bugbear description? No. <laughs> well, that's what it says about them. So they're not bugbears is what you're trying to tell me. Or maybe not even goblins. The humps, highly dubious. I don't know about these legends. <laughs> now, have you guys covered a lot of letters where Clark Ashton and Lovecraft talk about this land he's created or the world that he builds out? We have it. It's one of the things about this letter. One of the reasons we chose the letter that we're going to cover on our show is because it's one of the letters where Lovecraft actually has a lot to say about the story, and even at that, it's only a few sentences. Lovecraft seldom goes into great detail about other people's stories. Mm. At least it has been my experience. Sean, have you seen have you seen places where Lovecraft goes on at length about someone else's the details in someone else's story? It's usually only uh, skipping criticism. You know, he'll offer his thoughts, both positive or negative, but they usually tend to be pretty brief. And honestly, considering what an important figure Clark Ashton Smith was in Lovecraft's life, we haven't actually done very many Smith letters and haven't really spent all that much time with Mr. Smith. Have you personally read a lot of his stories or? Not me, not personally. Since we cover the letters and you guys cover the fiction, I'm confident you guys know Clark Ashton Smith's fiction way better than I do. Yeah, I was never personally won over by Smith remotely to the extent that I was won over by the literature of Lovecraft. So while I've read a lot of the Smith stories back when I was first discovering it all, you know, in the in the 80s, I haven't really gone back to to revisit much of it in more recent decades. It doesn't have that little something that the Lovecraft had. They're dueling vocabularists. Yeah, <laughs> I, I certainly can see why Lovecraft likes Smith's fiction because, yeah, he busts out quite a bit of vocabulary in this uh -huh. story. And this was also pretty late in Smith's career as a writer. He was sort of, he'd gotten more or less sick of writing and was spending more time on sculpture and drawing mm. and much less on writing fiction by 1936 when this story was written. Yeah, right. You guys were able to share photos of sculptures of Smith's, which I'd never seen before. And we'll talk about yeah. on, on Voluminous. Let's keep going with the story. Now they get to the house of the maiden Rubalsa who lives with her grandmother. She's beautiful, and Simbin thinks that the king is going to be very happy with her. You know who else is happy with Rubalsa? Kushara and Zobal. <laughs> they do a whole cartoon wolf, you know, where their eyes shoot out of their head and their tongue lolls out. They are very <laughs> impressed with her. She was slender and of queenly height, and her skin was pale as the petals of white poppies, and the undulant blackness of her heavy hair was full of sullen copper gleamings beneath the sun. You can't really go wrong when there's undulant blackness going on in that head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is presented as a just a pure financial transaction, and Rubalsa's opinion of the situation is completely irrelevant. Wait, <laughs> she's she's in this story? 
<laughs> now, the next morning, after Grandma's paid off, they go back through the haunted desert. A note, Zabal has the magic arrows made by the wizard Amdok. Treated in doubtful fluids to make them possibly useful against demons. Koshara, he's not up for that. He refuses to have his pike blessed. His own well-tried weapon was equal to the spitting of any number of devils, he thinks. So I kind of like Zobal more than Kushara for accepting help from his wizard. Because... <laughs> That's really all I'm going to get for characterization, so I have to pick some kind of criteria. <laughs> Once they've picked up this woman, they're barely doing their jobs. They're so wrapped in amorous reveries. They're not paying attention to anything but this girl. Yeah, they are pretty terrible guards. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's slow going across the desert, and on top of that, a huge black storm of darkness engulfs them. Never have I seen such mist, Zobal says. Methinks it is like the smoke of the seven hells that men fable beneath Zothique. It's not a fog, it's like a solid darkness. And Kushara stabs it, and it makes this crazy noise. It says a horrible, multitudinous clamor as of drums, trumpets, cymbals, jangling armor, jarring voices, and mailed feet that tramped to and fro on the stony ground with a mighty clangor. So it's sort of this environmental trap. And we saw something like this. Uh, we did a bonus on the film Attack of the Mushroom People last month. Had a similar thing where there was this mist that pulled the travelers to the island, also present in the Hodgson story that was based on. Does Lovecraft use this effect in his fiction ever of the environment sort of drawing people in towards the horror? The first thing that comes to mind is uh, the picture in the house. The guy goes into the house because of the terrible rainstorm. Right. But I don't think it's... It's not presented as like a supernatural rain. It's just raining. I was thinking of the, uh, at the Mountains of Madness too, there's the huge storm that comes in to destroy mm. Lake's camp and it sort of opens the way for the rest of the investigation to come and see what happened at Lake's camp. But it's the same thing. It's not really presented as a supernatural storm because of course all the the mayhem happened prior to the storm. Here, it's very clearly supernatural. They're being pulled yeah. off course by the storm of blackness and the horses are going mad. I, I kind of liked it. I, I was like, okay, this is something interesting here is going to happen. There's so much of the setup here. It seems kind of uh, by the book uh, up to this point. And I was looking forward to seeing what the eerie storm of darkness was going to bring. The darkness comes in and they can see fiery eyes in there. And Zobal, the archer, tries to hit it with his magic arrows but they aren't fast enough. Then they hear a demonic laugh. So I was thinking, well, those magic arrows aren't so hot, really. <laughs> They're able to move forward, and the darkness seemingly allowing them to go into one direction, and they find themselves in a valley. The stars are shining through this darkness. Kushara says, Never again shall I doubt the legendary of Isdril. So coming around to magic mm -hmm. has a little bit of an arc, maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Just a little bit. Take, just a little Take bit. what we can get, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so through the darkness, they've made their way or been led to the starlit open space. And then they bust out this line, which jumped off the page because it's quoted later. What new devilry is this? Asked Kushara, <laughs> which is what Boromir says in the, the Lord of the Rings when All they right. see the Balrog down in... Uh, the Mines of Moria. In that darkness, they see someone. The figure drawing near was revealed by the dim yellowish lantern as a black man of immense girth and tallness, garbed in a voluminous robe of saffron, such as was worn by certain monkish orders, and crowned with the two-horned purple hat of an abbot. Well, you guys just picked this story because it says voluminous in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. It is funny how, you know, for all of the highfalutin vocabulary that Smith uses in this story, he then busts out tallness. 
<laughs> seems so awkward to me. Such a weird word choice for right there. When you know we got a clivitus and nictitations and dubitation, we got tallness. <laughs> it's not even. It's like he couldn't think of the word height. Exactly. <laughs> what do you call it? Tallness. You know what I mean. The archer remembers tales of an old monastery in Israel, an old order that flourished centuries ago. It says a chapter of Negro monks that had flourished in Yoros many centuries ago. The chapter had long been extinct and the very site of its monastery was forgotten. Nowadays, there were few blacks anywhere in the kingdom. And when we ran up against that, I thought, oh, no, yeah. the black abbot is really just black. Like, I <laughs> yeah. thought for sure that meant satanic or evil, which yeah. it... It does. It isn't as racist as I worried that it would be at that point. We saw the title, obviously, before we read the story, and mm -hmm. I never dreamt that the title was <laughs> meant black like that. Yeah, I was very surprised yes. by that sudden description as well. Oh, okay. Now, the donkeys don't like this guy that's just appeared, the abbot. And when he talks, the abbot has discolored pointed teeth that become mm. apparent. Immediately, I'm going, looks like we got ourselves a Dracula. There you go. It says, his eyes, deeply slanted and close together, seemed to wink perpetually in pouches that shook like ebon jellies. His nostrils flared prodigiously. His purple, rubbery lips drooled and quivered, Ugh. and he licked them with a fat, red, salacious tongue. The fat, red, salacious tongue kind of saves it at the end. <laughs> All of these... Uh, I was know. very grateful for it. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> this is meant to just make the abbot seem monstrous. Right. He introduces himself as Ujik, abbot of the monastery of Futham, and he says that they are obviously lost and offers them some hospitality and a place to stay for the night. So Kushara and Sobel, they're a little suspicious of this guy. <laughs> I don't get why. Uh, I mean, yeah. the all right, the donkeys are afraid, but yeah. that shouldn't be enough to scare them. Well, not only does he have Dracula teeth, Ujik has three-inch talon claws on his hands. He's not even trying to hide what he is. It is March. I mean, what do you expect? It's pretty, it's pretty blatant what's what's about to go down. Of course, he's also given Rubalsa the creep gaze. Mm. Those guys get mad at him. They're like, how dare he give her the creep gaze? She's for our creep gaze. <laughs> yeah, but they, he's got the salacious tongue. That's so, true. You know, he's taking it to a new level. <laughs> we knew better than to lick our lips. <laughs> Rubalsa and Simbin don't seem to notice that this guy's a full-on Dracula, and they're super psyched to have a place to just chill out. Zabol and Kushara reluctantly accept this invitation, but they're going to keep a close eye on this Ujik guy. Except they're not, really. No. <laughs> Medium close. <laughs> Ujik takes them to a big hall with a huge ebony table. He serves them strong booze and lots of meats and food, but Zabal and Kushara, they don't eat any of it. It says there are baked meats that neither could identify, so I don't know how they could turn that away, but <laughs> But Simbin and Rubalsa, clueless, they tear right into it. By the way, the servants that are serving them are bunches of monks who more or less look just like Ujuk. They have teeth, nails, and they don't mention it, but they all probably have widow's peaks. It's all <laughs> yeah. Dracula staff. Medallions around their necks. <laughs> Ujuk doesn't eat or drink anything during this meal. Nope, just lustfully checking out Rubasa. It says the stare soon began to abash the girl and then to alarm and frighten her. She ceased eating, and Simbin, who had been deeply preoccupied till then with his supper, was plainly perturbed when he saw the flagging of her appetite. Simba tries to make some conversation. How far have we gone astray from the route to Farad? I do not consider that you have gone astray, Ujuk says. We have few guests here, and we are loth to part with those who honor our hospitality. Simbin says, well, we have to depart early tomorrow. That's another matter, Ujuk replies. Perhaps by then you'll have forgotten this deplorable haste. Mm. You know, if you listen to this podcast, the overriding theme is don't go on trips, don't go on vacation, don't stay anywhere except your own home. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's pretty much it. Zabal and Krishara notice that these monks cast no shadows. Dracula alert. <laughs> yeah, it, it's blatant. <laughs> so the archer and the pikemen are feeling a bit worried. They've defeated lots of men, but there's some monster business going on here. Rubalsa and Saban pass out pretty fast from all the hard booze and eaten. They're trying to get Rubalsa to stay in a room by herself, but Simban insists he put, be put up with her. Now they put them to bed in the same room and the warriors stand guard at the door. What did you guys think was going to happen at this point? Well, I mean, it's obvious that Ujuk is the bad guy and he makes this creepy thing about, I'm sure you'll sleep very comfortably in the beds that I've prepared for you. (laughs) 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 Yeah, almost (laughs) that. Clearly there's going to be some uh, shenanigans about to happen. The night is quiet and our warriors are really thirsty and really, really hungry and also sleepy, of course. The big Three. Yeah. <laughs> they hear their horses making noise, and the archer decides to go down and check out what's going on while the pike bearer stands guard. And he sees that the animals are fine. He goes into their food, the food that they brought with them, and water, and he helps himself a bit. But then he hears something, a whisper. It was his buddy tells him when he goes, oh, if you're going to check the horses, bring back some apricots or something. Bring back food. It's just like he's making a trip to the kitchen at, at midnight or whatever. <laughs> Now, this whisper he hears, words that were fraught with the hopeless sorrow of a dead man who had sinned long ago and had repented his sin through black sepulchral ages. That's a lot to get from tone of a whisper. (laughs) (laughs) Whispers in darkness are often full of trouble. Yeah. Full of information, too, apparently. (laughs) But I like that we're about to unlock the whole backstory here of this story because he went to check on the horses. There was no curiosity. No. He didn't figure out any puzzles or see something strange that was... The exposition is just out here hanging out, ready to go (laughs) for whomever might come to the stables to check on their horses. Yes. And despite the obvious warning signs that they have ignored. That's right. Now, he follows the voice to a stone slab and the voice tells him to open it. He does, and he finds stairs that go down, and the voices come on down. <laughs> and Zobal finds that it is a crypt with hundreds of bones and mummified bodies on shelves. That's not all. He beheld a half-decayed corpse, about whose long, attenuate limbs and hollow body there hung a few rotten shreds of yellow cloth. These, he thought, were the remnants of a robe such as was worn by the monks of Puthum. Then, thrusting his torch into the niche, He discerned the lean, mummy-like head, on which moldered a thing that had once been the horned hat of an abbot. Aha, so there's yet another abbot, also of African descent. Clark Ashton Smith has a positive black abbot role model in here, as well as a negative (laughs) black abbot role model. It's a balanced story. Yes. Sure. (laughs) Now the mummy moves slightly, and it speaks. He says that he is Uldor, the abbot of Putham. He's going to whisper everything that you're about to hear. So lean in close. Mm. Smell that mummy breath. <laughs> he explains that long ago, he and his monks were part of a celibate cult worshiping the maiden goddess Ojhal. The emperor didn't like them. They were booted out of their homeland and they came here to continue their celibate cult. They settled in Israel, but over the years, being a cult of celibacy, they died out. He was the last survivor and used sorcery to remain alive so that he could study arcana and nature. But he got lonely, and the haunted desert brought him a succubus. A very sexy succubus. Did I mention that he was lonely? (laughs) He says he tried to resist, but Come on, he succumbed. Yeah. He succumbed. She's a succubus. What do you do with a succubus? You succumb. That's how it works. 
this succubus was more cunning than the rest and took on the appearance of someone he'd loved in his past life before he became celibate. And from their union, she had a child, half-human, half-demon called Ujik. After that, the abbot wanted to die, but he pissed off his celibacy god because he had sex. So she says, nope. She made him immortal, although not necessarily forever young, which is pretty mean. As Ujik got stronger, he got weaker until Ujik was fully grown. Then he took Uldor down and he just stuck him in the crypt. Yeah, that's pretty cold, man. Mean. <laughs> mean spirited. Yeah. I thought this was a fun twist, though, that, you know, the real Black Abbot of Puthum is the m mummy in the basement who's been down there for a very long time. The abbot that we were introduced to at the beginning is really the son of the Black Abbot of Puthum, who's an imposter, kind of. Yeah. He says, here I have remained ever since, dying and rotting eternally, and yet eternally alive. For almost a millennium, I have suffered unsleepingly the dire anguish of repentance that brings no expiation. That's a nice, cruel twist. Well, I mean, it's terrible, but yeah, it's yeah. well done. With this sorcerer power, Uldor has watched Ujek use his own magic to hide the abbot and draw victims into this place. Men he devours, women he made to serve his lust, and he is forced to witness all of these atrocities. Somehow, from the basement. With his magic. Oh yeah, right, with the magic. The way it's all <laughs> described, it seems like the most offensive thing that Ujuk is doing is pretending to be an abbot. You know, <laughs> he's a rapist and murderer, but he really shouldn't be wearing that hat. He tells the archer that his magic arrows are actually pretty sweet <laughs> and they can kill Ujuk. But he asks the archer if he would put an arrow through his heart to end his suffering. He whispers to Zobal. Zobal is shocked at what he hears the abbot speak to him, Well, even though we don't know exactly what he says. Mm. It's some secret about the monks, but we don't get to know what it is at this point. And then he tells the archer to take his this magic talisman that will undo any enchantments that he runs upon. Not a bad haul. And I guess the message of the story is check the horses. <laughs> it might pay off for you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> totally. Zobal shoots an arrow into Oldar, but he's still alive. And he says, another. So he shoots him again. But Oldar says, another. And the third arrow finally does the trick. And Oldar turns to dust. It's kind of a comical scene that he has to keep shooting at. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> it's a highly comical scene. Is he just a bad aim? Or was it that he no, really I, needed... I, I got the impression that, you know, the first arrow is supposed to go in your heart. And then if that's not enough, then you shoot him in one eye. And then if that's not enough, you shoot him in the other eye. So okay. I think he aimed exactly where he was supposed to. It's just go, go. maybe those magic arrows are, in fact, not as good as uh, they are <laughs> cracked up to be. This doesn't seem to be working. <laughs> <laughs> just really hurts. Yeah. Now, when he gets back up, everything seems quiet. So he grabs some food and drink for his man, Kashara. And he heads back up to the room. But before he gets there, he hears a frightful hubbub. That's what it says, a frightful hubbub. <laughs> the door has been sealed up as if it was a wall, and Kushar is slamming it with his pike. It's a wall wrapped by demons. They built it very, very quietly behind him while he stood there guarding the door. <laughs> and he stresses. It was just real quiet what they did. I didn't fall asleep. <laughs> they can hear Saban and Rubalza screaming. Simban gurgles and then gurgles no more. Poor Simbon. Zobal says, hold your horses, and he pulls out the talisman, which dissolves this magic wall. Uh -huh. But not only does it does the wall disappear, the whole monastery begins to crumble, 
as if the whole working building was just an illusion, and now all that remains are ruins. It was all a dream, all <laughs> the product of magic. That's some pretty slick sorcery. By the livid light of the moon, which peered down like the face of a worm-gnawed cadaver, they looked upon a scene so hideous that it caused them to forget all else. Simbin lies dead, blood pouring out of his throat, and Ujik stands over Rubalza, ready to do something bad to her. Hovers over her, I think. The story, as published in Weird Tales, this is the scene that is illustrated in Weird Tales. Virgil Finley did the illustration, and it shows Ujuk like, literally floating in the air over this girl oh. while, uh, while the two guys are standing amazed at the doorway. She was trying to fend off with her lifted hands the enormously swollen shape that hung horizontally above her, as if levitated by the floating wing-like folds of its saffron robe. So that's what he describes. Yep. He's laughing because he's loving this. Ujek, he's having a great time until he sees the two dudes coming in trouble. Kushara rushed forward with leveled pike ere Zobal could fit one of his arrows to the string. But even as the pike bearer crossed the sill, it seemed that the foully bloated form of Ujuk multiplied itself in a dozen yellow garmented shapes that surged to meet Kushara's onset. Appearing as if by some hellish legerdemain, the monks of Kuthum had mustered to assist their abbot. Zobal cried out in warning, but the shapes were all about Kushara, dodging the thrusts of his weapon and clawing ferociously at his plate armor with their terrific three-inch talons. Valiantly he fought them, only to go down after a little and disappear from sight, as if whelmed by a pack of ravening hyenas. I can't believe he used the word whelmed. <laughs> not overwhelmed, not underwhelmed, just straight up whelmed. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes a good whelming is all you need. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Zabal remembered what Older told him. Don't waste your magic arrows on the monks. Go for Ujik. So he waits for his moment. He lets loose the arrow and boom, Ujik drops and rise. And the monks vanish as he dies. Kushara is like, whoa, 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 what happened to the monks? The monks were but emanations of Ujuk. Zobal says they were mere phantasms that he sent forth and withdrew into himself at will. With Ujuk's death, they had become less than shadows. So it's the old kill the main guy and all the soldiers go away. Right. They go to Rubalsa, who tries to cover up her nakedness with the tatters of blankets that were previously fine cloths. Because mm. remember, it was all part of the illusion. She's very yeah. confused as if coming out of a dream. And Zobal asks if she was hurt, and she shakes her head no. No, I'm having a wonderful time. I'm not upset after my grandmother sold me, and I was nearly raped by a demon. Seems that this has turned out all right. It's par for the course here in Israel. So Baal is really into Rabalza, and he and the pike man turn to give her some privacy, and then they, have a, they want to have a little conversation with one another. He tells Kushara that the whole demon thing wasn't part of the deal that they made with the king so that they can actually probably just keep this woman for themselves. They both love her, love her, so they should draw lots for who gets to have her. And Kushara's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. And whoever loses, though, is going to have to help them get out of this haunted desert. Kushara goes, yep, sounds good with me. Well, they don't have any lots, so they decide that the best thing to use for lots are the claws of the dead Ujik. Makes sense. One being longer than the others, so... Va vampire claws are seldom the same length. You usually get a nice set of differing <laughs> lengths. It's perfect. As we'll see. And the story concludes with this. He shook the helmet vigorously as one shakes a dice box, and there was a sharp clattering from the claws. Then he held the helmet out to Kushara, saying, He who draws the forefinger talon shall take the girl. 
Kushara put in his hand and withdrew it quickly, holding aloft the heavy thumbnail, which was shortest of all. Zobal drew the nail of the middle finger, and Kushara, at his second trial, brought forth the little finger's claw. Then, to the deep chagrin of the pike-bearer, Zobal produced the dearly coveted index talon. Rubalsa, who had been watching this singular procedure with open curiosity, now said to the warriors, What are you doing? Zobal started to explain, but before he had finished, the girl cried out indignantly, Neither of ye has consulted my preference in this matter. Then, pouting prettily, she turned away from the disconcerted archer and flung her arms about the neck of Kushara. <laughs> Boom! In your face, Obal! Woo! And that's the end. We stop right before she breaks Kushara's neck and begins her <laughs> reign of terror, I imagine. Well, that's the story. What did you guys think? <laughs> I was reminded why I think I'm not a huge Clark Ashton Smith fan. Mm -hmm. It was fun and it was amusing, but it seemed, I, I, it made me think of the, the kind of commercial dreck that Lovecraft decries all the time when he's telling younger authors to write with sincerity and not for the commercial marketplace. Yeah, it seemed, and we could talk about it with the letter, but when I read it, that some of the feedback or ideas that Lovecraft had about this had more to do with I really like the world and less to do with anything about the story. To me, it felt a little bit like going to a play and saying, I really like the costume. <laughs> like, <laughs> I completely maybe agree. he yeah. didn't really like this story that much. Yeah, he does describe in the letter, which we'll cover on the on the other show, you know, he he does praise this story, but I think it's because not having read a lot of Clark Ashton Smith stuff myself, this story struck me as really full of deliberately archaic vocabulary, vises and vowses and and you know the Welkin and words that make sense in Shakespeare but seem really affected in a 1936 pulp magazine story. Right. And I, but I think that's probably what Lovecraft liked is because it's full of these delicious words that you don't normally encounter. They are cool words, but it does <laughs> strike me as being very mannered. And this story is silly. Uh, there's a lot of silliness that goes on <laughs> in it, which. Lovecraft was never very silly. I mean, occasionally in some of his intentionally silly stories that he wrote, his comedic pieces is, were few and far between. Yeah. But generally, he was very serious. And Clark Ashton Smith does write some serious stuff as well. But there is an element of more, I don't know, high adventure or pulpiness, I guess, really, to his stories. Yeah, and the sitcom punchline ending of, you know, where the damsel in distress says, you know, turns it into, the whole thing turns into a joke at the end. Yeah. It struck me as almost feeling more Robert E. Howard-like yeah. with these two fighter barbarian guys, and you, you know, you don't take the girl seriously and has that kind of sword and sorcery high adventure kind of thing, and it left me wondering whether how seriously... Clark Ashton Smith took the story mm. and did he see it as a, a great, this will really scare people with its mummified habits and <laughs> and all that, or or was he having fun and seeing it more as, as a commercial vehicle that he might be able to sell, because it, it certainly lends itself to lively art and place in the magazine, but didn't really take it that seriously as a piece of literature, and I, I don't know how Smith himself felt about it. This story was described as a vampire story, and I'm I, I'm not quite sure who's the vampire in this story. 
whether it's, you know, the original monk who's now this undead thing in the basement, or is it the half-human, half-demon son who is pulling all the strings? I'm not sure. Or is it the yeah. is it the Lamiae who, you know, seduced the original monk and is the mother of the the current Black Abbot? Was she the vampire? I'm not clear on who really is the vampire in this story? <laughs> well, so that's why we're not quite getting the story is because it was part of a genre that was popular at the time of who's the vampire. You would read a story <laughs> and you'd go, I, I don't know what that was all about, but let's all sit here and guess who the vampire is. This was a very popular pastime. I think it was Rubalsa the vampire and she is <laughs> ah. is totally lulling them into a false sense of security and Ooh. she's about to drain all the blood because where does she fling her arms about the neck <gasps> of kushara whoa slurping the blood out there you go see that's why we had these guys on because we never would have picked up on that no. and that letter that we're going to cover on voluminous yeah. i think lovecraft says something to the effect of i've only read your story in that particular issue of Weird Tales, and I'm sure it's the best one in there. You yeah. did say that, yeah. I guess that is faint praise. Yeah. <laughs> it's faint praise or it's a slap on the face to everybody else who's written in that issue, you know. <laughs> he doesn't think too much of all the rest of them. I have to say that, yeah, this was a little like Dun that Dunsany story we covered not that long ago, where he had the magic sword that was just given to him that allowed him to take out the whole fortress, which mm -hmm. all fell apart. Yeah. He found out it even wasn't even a real fortress. This was very similar. All he did was go out and talk to the horses, and this mummy was like, Psst, come over here, I'll tell you. You. Everything you need to know. Plus, here's a magic amulet you need. You know, he just gets everything. So there's yeah. no, the heroes go through nothing. They don't change. Yeah. It's no great skill on their part that they're able to get out of the situation. No, no, they're sort of non-characters. And I would think that if he is just being playful, that he might, there might be more craziness involved, like Empire of the Necro Necromancers. When we read that, I think that had like an army of the dead and undead horses. And it was similar to this, where it was sort of non-characters in a fantasy setting. But uh, Smith really pushed it. Let's do some crazy things. So even though there's not character development or plot or any really big twists, you still get some magic. Where And in this one, mm, I don't know. Yeah. It produced but, a good illustration for the magazine, I guess. It makes me think of, oh, I can't help but think of Conan stories because it oh, is yeah. a sword and sandals kind of thing. But the Conan stories, he'd had a very distinct character. It was his personality that often got him in trouble. Barbarian nature, his disdain for culture and civilization and it was more character driven I it's I know it sounds kind of crazy to say about that but it, it's true whereas these guys could have been anybody mm. the only thing that was special about them was they had magic arrows already <laughs> <laughs> I think Conan would have had an opinion about doing this for the king as well oh yeah. you know they they clearly as Andrew said early on they aren't very good guards it says in the opening paragraph that they are and the king dispatches them for things where it requires a lot of faith to the crown, they ain't got it. Not at all. No evidence no. of it. Well, you should see the other guards. <laughs> yeah, you should. the other guards are like those other authors in Weird Tales. You you are the best guards. <laughs> and I mean, at the end, we, we can see that they are completely not loyal to the king. They're like, well, since this vampire was part of the deal, that means we get to keep her and not fulfill our duty at all. Yeah. They're terrible. <laughs> and no one weeps for the poor eunuch. He's just, you know, Aww. written off as soon as he starts gurgling. That's true. Poor Simbin. We don't know how he got into that pimping career. We could have had a whole troubled backstory that we just didn't learn about. Looking back, was Simbin the vampire? Oh, my God. Whoa. Same, we're back to it. Yeah. I thought it was salt, but it, no. I did, too. I'm excited to delve into this letter to kind of paint the backstory to this story about what was mm -hmm. going on with the author and Lovecraft at the time. There's lots to talk about, so I encourage everybody to go over to Voluminous 
Find it on your favorite podcatchers. Come to the HPLHS website, hplhs.org, and then there's under productions, there's a drop down menu that will take you to Voluminous. And if you go to that page on our website, you'll get not only the, the show, the podcast, but all the pictures. We'll show you the picture from Weird Tales. We'll show mm. you a bunch of the other stuff that gets discussed in the letter. So you can, of course, catch it on your favorite podcatchers. But if you go to the website, you'll get all that, plus a lot of bonus fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For now, this has been Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Andrew Lieben. And I'm Sean Branning. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Andrew, for reading on this show. And uh, we're going to be back with more vampire stories this month, and they will be vampire stories for sure. <laughs> yeah, nothing, none of this ambiguous, who's the vampire now? <laughs> yeah, no more vampire whodunits. That short-lived genre will not have show his head on this show once again. Hey, folks, this is Chad Pfeiffer just popping in to deliver on that promise and let you know that next week we will be doing the story Revelations in Black by Carl Jacoby. We will also be doing The Werewolf and the Vampire by R. Chetwin Hayes this month. And also, what would Marches for Dracula's be without stakes? And what would stakes be without stakers? I want to thank our six fabulous stakers, crypto cartographer Alistair Brooks, the twins, Angelina Brown, Evan, and Eric Gordon for making this free show possible. You guys are the best. We'll be back with more vampires next week. Goodbye. Thanks. Strange studies of strange stories. Ah!